Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Infected is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash infected. Chapter 20. Shorthanded. It was hard to believe it had only been seven days since Murray had sent for him. Seven days ago, when he'd never heard of the Triangles, Margaret Montoya or Martin Brubaker. Seven days ago, when his partner wasn't in a hospital bed, a bed that for all intents and purposes, Dew had put him in. Seven days ago, Murray had called for Dew. They'd fought side by side back in the day, but after Nam, they didn't exactly keep in touch. When Murray called, it meant only one thing. He wanted something done. Something unappealing. Something that required getting a little dirt under the fingernails. Something that Murray, with his tailored suits and his manicures, wasn't willing to do. But they'd been through hell together, and even though Murray had advanced in the CIA ranks and done his damnness to rise above the shit-stomping lieutenant he'd been in Nam, when Murray called, Dew always answered. It was only seven days ago that Dew had stood in Murray's waiting room, eyeing the twenty-something, red-haired secretary, wondering if Murray was fucking her. She looked up with her sparkling green eyes and genuine smile. Can I help you, sir? Irish accent, Dew thought. If he's not banging her, or at least trying, he must be impotent. I'm Agent Dew Phillips. Murray's expecting me. Of course, Agent Phillips. Go right in, the redhead added in a confidential tone. You're a few minutes late, and Mr. Longworth hates tardiness. Does he? Ain't that a bite in the ass. I'll have to get on some kind of schedule. Dew walked into Murray's sprawling, Spartan office. A bullet-ridden American flag decorated one wall. On the opposite wall hung a row of pictures showing Murray with each of the last five presidents. The pictures were like a stop-action movie of Murray's aging process, from hard-bodied young man to more than slightly overweight, cold-eyed piece of gristle. Dew noticed the absence of any pictures showing Murray in his army uniform, either dress or fatigues. Murray wanted to forget that time, forget who he'd been back then, forget the things he'd done. Dew couldn't forget, and he didn't want to anymore. It was a part of his life, and he'd moved on. Mostly, anyway. He certainly remembered the flag on Murray's wall, remembered the firebase where he and Murray and six other men had been the only survivors of an entire company, remembered fighting for his life with all the savagery of a rabid animal. It had been like something from World War I at the end, just before the choppers arrived, fighting hand-to-hand in wet, sandbag trenches, the 2 a.m. stars hidden by clouds that poured rain and turned the firebase into a slick sea of mud. Murray Longworth sat behind a large oak desk devoid of decoration, unless you counted the computer. The desk's empty top gleamed with layers of polish. Hey, LT, Dew said. You know, Dew, I'd appreciate it if you didn't use that nickname. We've had this talk before. Sure thing. Guess I forgot all about that. Have a seat. Nice place you got here. You've had this office something like four years now? Glad I finally get to see it. Murray said nothing. It's been, what, three years since we talked, LT? Seven years since you needed something from me. Your career in trouble again? Is that it? You need good old dude to come in and pull your ass out of the fire? Make you look good. Is that it? 
it's not like that this time. Sure, LT, sure. You know, I'm not as young as I used to be. My old body may not be up to your dirty work. Dew stood in front of the flag. A grimy brown color stained the top left corner. Just Delta mud, Murray told anyone that asked. But it wasn't mud, and Dew knew that better than anyone. The flag had once been attached to a flagpole that Dew used to kill a VC, driving the brass point into the enemy's gut like some primitive tribal spearman. The bottom right corner held a similar stain, where Dew had tried in vain to stop the blood pouring from Quint Wellman's throat after an AK-47 round had all but decapitated the 18-year-old corporal. They hadn't used the flag for motivation, because at the time, none of them had been particularly patriotic. The flag just happened to be where they made their last stand, where they held off the attack until the choppers came and bailed them out. Murray was the last one to board, making sure the other men, all wounded including Dew, were on before he worried about himself. He grabbed the flag, the blood-stained, burned, and bullet-ridden flag on the way out. No one knew why at the time, probably not even Murray. When they realized it was all over, that they had escaped death, left the corpses of both friends and enemies behind, the flag somehow took on more meaning. Dew stared at the tattered fabric, the memories pouring back, and it was a second before he realized Murray was softly calling his name. Dew. Dew. Dew turned and blinked, quickly returning to reality, to the present. Murray gestured to the chair in front of his desk. Dew thought about antagonizing Murray some more, then walked to the chair and sat down. Dew pulled a Tootsie Roll from his jacket pocket, unwrapped it, popped the brown candy into his mouth, then dropped the wrapper on the floor. He chewed for a moment, staring at Murray, then asked, Did you hear about Jimmy Tillamock? Murray shook his head. Ate a bullet. Used an old forty-five. Wasn't much left of his face. Murray's head sank and a long sigh hissed from his body. My God, I hadn't heard. Imagine that. He's only been in rehab a half dozen times in the last four years. He crashed hard, Murray. He crashed hard, and he needed his friends. Why didn't you call me? Would you have come? Murray's silence answered the question. He looked up from the floor to return Dew's stone-eyed stare. So, we're the last ones then. Yep. Just the two of us. Golly gee, it's a good thing we stayed so close all these years. Now we've got each other to rely on. Let's get to the fucking point, LT. What do you want? Murray pulled out a manila folder and passed it to do. It was labeled Project Tangram. We've got what could be a major problem. Murray, if this is just some bullshit where I get shot at so your career can advance, I'm not doing it. I told you it's not like that this time, Do This is serious. Yeah? Bat and clean up again, Murray? Who gave you their dirty laundry this time? I can't tell you. Do stared hard at Murray. LT didn't mind dropping names. That was for damn sure. It all clicked at once. Murray couldn't say who, and he'd called the one man who would do whatever it took to get the job done. Holy shit. This is from the big man, isn't it? This some secret presidential action, am I right? <clears throat> Do I said I can't tell you. The classic non-denial denial. Murray's way of confirming Dew's theory without actually saying the words. Dew opened the folder and started browsing the contents. There were only four files, three case reports and an overview. 
Dew read the overview twice before he looked up, his expression ashen and disbelieving. He looked back to the report and started quoting some of the more fantastical phrases. Biological behavior manipulation? Bioengineered organism? Infectious terrorist weapon? Murray, are you yanking my crank with this stuff? Murray shook his head. This is bullshit. You think that some terrorist created a, let's see what it says here, bioengineered organism to make people psychotic? It's not exactly what it says, do. We've got three cases so far where normal people have contracted some kind of growth and shortly afterward, they become psychotic. We don't know for certain that this is a terrorist activity, but I think you appreciate that we have to act like it is. We can't be caught sitting on our hands. Charlotte Wilson's report had a picture attached a Polaroid that showed a bluish, triangular mark on her shoulder. The picture attached to Gary Leland's file showed a scowling old man. A hateful, suspicious expression marred his wrinkled, stubbly face. The lumpy, bluish triangle on his neck accentuated the unpleasant expression. So this thing turns people into killers. It made Charlotte Wilson, a 70-year-old grandmother, kill her own son with a butcher knife. It made Blaine Tannery kill his wife and two young daughters with a pair of scissors. It made Gary Leland, a 57-year-old man, set his own hospital bed on fire, killing himself and three other patients. Could this be coincidence? Did we check the background on any of these people? Any mental conditions? I've checked it out, Do. I wouldn't have called you in if I hadn't. In all these cases, the victim had no history of violence, no medical conditions, no psychological problems. All their friends and neighbors said they were good people. The only thing they have in common, in fact, is the sudden onset of acute paranoid behavior and those triangular growths. What about foreign occurrences? Anyone else dealing with something similar? Murray again shook his head, a solemn look on his face. Nothing. And we've looked, do. We've looked hard. As far as we know, we're the only country with cases like this. Do nodded, slowly, now understanding why Murray chose to see a conspiracy amongst the carnage. But how could terrorists come up with something like this? I don't think terrorists invented it, but terrorists didn't invent nuclear warheads, sarin gas, or passenger jets. Someone created this, and that's all that matters. Do reread the report. If it was a terrorist weapon, it was a doozy. It made car bombs and random plane hijackings look worthless by comparison. Imagine a country where you never know if your friends or neighbors or coworkers are suddenly going to snap and try to kill everyone in sight. People wouldn't go to work. People wouldn't leave their houses without a gun. You would suspect that everyone was a possible killer. Hell, if parents murdered their own children, no one was safe. Such a weapon would cripple America. Dew reached for another Tootsie Roll. Murray, this couldn't be one of our weapons, could it? Something that maybe accidentally on purpose got out of control? Murray was shaking his head before Dew finished the sentence. No, no way. I've checked everything, and I mean everything. This isn't ours, Do I give you my word. Do unwrapped the piece of candy and again dropped the wrapper on Murray's immaculate carpeting. So how's it work? We don't know for sure. The logical theory is that the growths produce drugs, which are dumped right into the bloodstream. Kind of like a living hypodermic needle pumping out bad shit. How many people know about this? A few people know bits and pieces, but as far as those that know the whole enchilada, there's myself, the director, the president, and two CDC doctors listed in the reports. Dew stared at the photos. They gave him an uneasy feeling, down deep, 
at an instinctual level. I need you on this one, Top, Murray said. The name chafed do as badly as LT chafed Murray. Top, short for Top Sergeant, the rank he'd held when he'd served under Murray back in Nam. For years, that had been his only name, a name that commanded respect. Once upon a time, everyone he knew had called him Top. Now the only one left who even knew the name was Murray, the guy who wanted to pretend that Vietnam had never happened. Somehow, Dew didn't find humor in the irony. And I don't care how old you are, Top. As far as I'm concerned, you're still the best agent in the field. We need someone who will do whatever it takes to get the job done. And even if you only believe half of what's in that report, you know we have to find out what's going on, and damn fast. Dew studied Murray's face. He'd known that face for over 30 years. Even after all this time, he could tell when Murray was lying. Murray had asked for help before, and on each of those occasions, Dew knew damn well it was to benefit Murray's career. But all those times, Dew had done it anyway. Because it was Murray. Because it was LT. Because he'd fought side by side with the man during the most nightmarish period of their lives. But now it was different. LT wasn't doing this for personal gain. He was scared. Scared shitless. All right, I'm in. I gotta bring my partner in on this. Absolutely not. I'll get you someone else, someone I know. Malcolm doesn't have your clearance. Dew was taken aback for a moment, shocked that Murray knew his partner's name. What's clearance got to do with it, LT? You just want someone who'll pull the trigger whenever you need it pulled. And as much as it pains me to admit it, that's who I am. But I've been with Malcolm for seven years, and I'm not going after this crazy-ass hullabaloo without him. Trust me, he's reliable. Murray Longworth was a man used to getting his way, used to having his orders followed. But Dew knew he was also a politician. Sometimes, politicians had to give a little to get what they wanted. That was the nature of the game that Dew could never grasp, the game Murray played so well. Fine. He's in. I trust your judgment. Dew shrugged his shoulders. So what do we do next? Murray turned his gaze to the window. We wait, Top. We wait for the next victim. He'd waited then and he was waiting now. Seven days ago, he'd been waiting for something to happen, for a chance to see if this crazy Project Tangram crap was for real, a hoax, or something whipped up to earn Murray another promotion. Now, however, he was waiting for his best friend to die. A death that would have never occurred if Dew hadn't insisted, insisted, goddammit, on getting Mal involved. Rested but still weary, fueled more by anger than sleep, Dew sat alone in his hotel room, the big cell phone pinched between his shoulder and ear. Your partner's still in critical? Yeah, still touch and go. He's fighting his ass off. On the table in front of Dew lay a yellow cloth, on top of which sat a disassembled military-issue Colt 45 automatic. The dull, smooth metal winked blue-gray under the hotel room's glaring lights. The docs are working on him? Day and night. That CDC bitch came in to take a look at him, too. Can't she at least wait until the body's cold, Murray? I sent her in, do you know that. She needs all the information she can get. We're grasping at straws here. So what information does she have? I'm flying in tomorrow. I'll get a first-hand report, and then I'll fill you in. You just sit tight until then. What's the national picture? We have any new clients? Dew finished oiling and assembling the gun. He set it aside and pulled out two boxes, 
one full of empty magazines, the other full of 45 caliber cartridges. Not that we know of. All's quiet on the Western Front, it seems. And if we do have any other clients, you don't need to worry about them. You need a break. I'm working on bringing some more people in. With mechanical, habitual speed, Dew loaded the first magazine. He set it aside and started on the second. Dew sighed, as if his next words would seal his friend's fate. But duty came first. Mal ain't gonna make it, Murray. It may suck to say that, but it's the truth. I've got someone lined up for you. I'm gonna brief him shortly. No more partners. Fuck you, do, Murray said, his tone suddenly turning angry. Murray hit his emotions well, always had, but now his frustration rang through. Don't you start flaking out on me. I know I want to do solo on this, but it's getting too big. I want someone with you. You need some help. I said, no more partners, Murray. You'll follow orders. Send me a partner and I'll shoot him in the knee. You know I'll do it. Murray said nothing. Dew continued his voice halting only slightly, colored by a tiny sliver of emotion. Malcolm was my partner, but he's as good as dead. The shit I saw was crazy, Murray. People infected with this crap aren't human anymore. Saw that for myself. So I know what we're up against. I know that Margaret needs something to work with, and she needs it fast. I can get that on my own. If I have to get used to someone else, I can't move like I need to. I'll fly solo from here on out, Murray. Do. You can't make this personal. This is no time for stupid thoughts to cloud your judgment. Do finished the second mag. He held it in his left hand, staring at it, staring at the glossy tip of the single exposed bullet. This isn't revenge, Murray. Don't be a dumbass. The asshole that got Malcolm is already dead, so what can I take revenge against? I'll just work better sans partner. Murray fell silent for a moment. Dew didn't really care if Murray agreed or not. He was working alone, and that was that. All right, Dew. Just remember, we need a live victim more than we need another corpse. Call me when you get into town. Dew hung up. He'd lied, of course. It was personal. If you thought about it enough, everything was personal in one way or another. Sooner or later, he'd find out who was making these little triangular buggers. Malcolm was gone and somebody was going to pay. He popped a magazine into the forty-five, chambered around, then walked to the bathroom. Holding the gun in his right hand, finger on the trigger, Dew carefully examined himself in the mirror. He wasn't going out like that, not like Brubaker. His skin looked fine, but small red spots seemed to fade in and out, catching the corner of his vision, then disappearing when he stared, his imagination fucking with his head. If he contracted the infection, would he be sane long enough to know the symptoms? He didn't need to hold on to his sanity for long. Just long enough to pull the trigger. Dew walked to the bed. He set the loose magazine in the nightstand, slid the forty-five under his pillow, lay down, and immediately fell into a light sleep. He dreamed of burning houses, rotten corpses, and Frank Sinatra singing I've Got You Under My Skin. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. 
In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Piura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Piura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. On a remote island in Frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 21, The Fizzle. It felt so good to be out of the rackle suit. She couldn't wait to take a shower because she smelled riper than a rotten egg. She had to clean up. Murray was on his way to the hospital for an official update. At the moment, however, the shower had to wait. She read the report on the analysis of the strange fiber growing out of Martin Brubaker. After a few hours, the fiber dissolved, Amos said. They still can't figure out why. It seemed rot-free when we cut it out. But something triggered the effect. But this report came before that, right? This is from the fiber itself, not from the rot. Amos nodded. He was also thrilled to finally be free of the suit. He looked as relieved as a teenage boy who's just lost his virginity. That's right. They were able to analyze it before the effect kicked in. Pure cellulose. The same material that made up the triangular growth. Exactly. Well, almost. The growth cellulose seemed to be a structure, shell, skeleton, elements responsible for form. Most of the growth was cancerous cells. They were out of the suits because there was no more point in examining a body that was nothing but black, liquefying tissue and a strange green mold that covered half the table. They'd done all they could, as fast as they could. They hadn't really found any answers, just more questions. One such question bothered her to no end. The cellulose. So the blue fiber, same material as the triangle structure, both sources composed of cellulose, a material not produced by the human body. And we think this is some kind of parasite. you have any theories on the blue fiber? I think it's a fizzle. A fizzle? I think the blue fiber is part of a parasite that didn't quite make it to the larval stage. Oh, we know the stages now. Amos shrugged. For lack of a better term, let's call the triangle in the body the larval stage. Obviously, there's a pre-larval stage. The triangle is mostly cellulose. The fiber is cellulose. You do the math. It made sense in a way. Some cellular automata producing raw materials that were never quite used. Or perhaps a mutation of the parasite that just produced cellulose and never moved to the larval phase, as Amos suggested. And that word bothered her as well. So, if there is a larval stage, I suppose it turns into something else in the adult face. Don't ask stupid questions, Margaret. Of course it does. And no, I don't know what that is. Right now, I don't care. I want a shower before I have to face Murray Longworth. Maybe Amos could turn off his curiosity, but Margaret could not. Perhaps more accurately, 
She couldn't turn off her fear. If this was a larval stage, just what the hell awaited them in the adult form? Chapter 22. Don't Wait. Exfoliate. Perry sat slumped on his couch, a Newcastle brown ale in one hand and the remote control in the other. He flipped through the channels without really seeing the programs. He'd known the blue and green plaid couch since he'd been a kid when his dad brought it home from the Salvation Army as a surprise for his mom. At the time, the couch was in pretty good shape for a hand-me-down, but that was some 15 years ago. After his mother died, the couch and the dishes and silverware, none of which matched, was all he'd taken from the old house. As far as he knew, the house was still sitting on that dirt road in Sheboygan, crumbling into nothingness. During Perry's childhood, Dad's repetitive hand-me-down special repairs were the only thing that kept the place standing. Perry knew that no one else would ever want the ramshackle house. It was either rotting away or already bulldozed under. he had had the couch for several years, first at college, then in his apartment. After that long, it fit the contours of his big body as if it were custom-made for him. But even the couch, a beer, and the remote control couldn't remove the blackness that had followed him home from work. He'd been sent home early. Sent home, for crying out loud, like some undisciplined, lazy worker. That alone would have been enough to crush his spirit, but the Magnificent Seven simply refused to subside. And they didn't just itch anymore. They hurt. It wasn't just the thick, crusty scabs that throbbed incessantly. There was something else, something that ran deep. Something in his body told him that things were spiraling out of hand. Perry had always wondered if cancer patients knew something was horribly wrong. Sure, people always acted surprised when the doctor gave them that X amount of time to live shit, and some of them probably were a little surprised. But a lot of people suffer pain that they know isn't natural. Like his dad. His dad had known. Although he never said a word to anyone, he grew even quieter, more serious, and more angry. Yeah, although Perry didn't put the pieces together until after his father entered the hospital, the old man had known. And now, Perry knew. He had a weird feeling in his stomach. Not an instinct or intuition or anything like that, but a feathery, queasy feeling. For the first time since the rashes had flared up on Monday morning, Perry wondered if it might be something fatal. He stood and walked to the bathroom. Removing his shirt, he stared at his once-buff body. Obviously, the lack of sleep caused by his condition, and it was a condition now because of the feeling that something was really wrong, was getting to him. He looked pathetic. He'd always rubbed his head when he became nervous, and his hair stuck up wildly in all directions. His skin appeared paler than normal, even for a German boy trudging through a Michigan winter. The darkness under his eyes was pronouncedly unattractive. He looked sick. Another detail caught his eye, although he wondered if it was his imagination. His muscles seemed slightly more defined. He slowly rotated his arm, watching the deltoid flutter beneath his fatty skin. Was he more cut than before? Perry unbuttoned his pants and kicked them into the corner. He opened the medicine cabinet and grabbed the tweezers, then sat on the toilet. The cold seat made goosebumps run up and down his flesh. He gave the tweezers a flick with his finger. They vibrated with a soft tuning fork hum. 
The rash on his left thigh was the easiest one to get at. He'd done a lot of damage to it, both from intentional scratching and his unconscious attack during the previous night. Scabs, both crusty old and newly red, caked the three-inch diameter rash. Seemed like as good a spot as any to get rolling. He pinched the area around the scab-encrusted rash with his right forefinger and thumb, making it bulge out a little. Part of the scab's edge had begun to peel naturally. He started picking with the tweezers, pinched them down in a flake of scab and gently pulled. The scab lifted, but stayed firmly affixed to the skin. Perry leaned forward, eyes narrowing with determination and intensity. It would hurt like the proverbial bitch, but he was getting that thing off his body. He squeezed the tweezers harder and yanked. The thick scab finally gave. Accompanied by a flash of pain, it came free with the tiniest of tearing sounds. He set the tweezers down on the counter, then pulled off a strip of toilet paper. He dabbed at the bleeding, open sore. After a few seconds, the bleeding stopped. The exposed skin underneath didn't look right. It should have had that wet look, that shiny look, like skin in progress or something. This looked different. Too different. The flesh looked like an orange peel, not only in color, but in texture as well. It smelled faintly of wet leaves. Tiny tears oozed watery blood. A chill of stabbing panic knifed through his body. If this had happened to his leg, had it also happened to... He reached down to his testicles and slowly lifted them to get a good look, hoping to God they would look normal. In effect, God told Perry to piss off. It was the scariest thing he'd ever seen. Pale orange skin covered the left side of his scrotum. The area was mostly bald. Only a few curly pubic hairs remained. He'd been nervous up till now, even heading into the wonderful world of pure dread, but these were his balls, his balls for crying out loud. He sat, frozen, the toilet seat refusing to warm up, the drip under the sink so loud, he wondered in amazement how he'd ever managed to sleep in the tiny apartment. His mouth felt paper dry. He heard himself breathing. Everything seemed so quiet. Perry fought to control the panic dancing back and forth across his mind. He tried to rationalize the situation. It was just a strange rash, that's all. He'd go to the doctor and get it cleared up. Might take a shot or two, but it probably wouldn't be worse than the gonorrhea and syphilis tests he'd had in college. Gathering his courage, he let his fingers explore the area. It felt firm and unnatural. This wasn't something a shot of penicillin could clear up, because it wasn't just on the surface. He felt something inside his scrotum. Something that had never been there before. Something just under the thick orange skin. A coppery chill hit Perry as he realized, suddenly, and with perfect clarity, that he was going to die. Whatever this shit was, it was going to kill him, as it grew into his sack and up into his dick. A terror sat inside him now, growing just as surely as the Magnificent Seven grew, creating a dark, cold, shaky vibration in his soul. Breathe, he told himself. Just breathe. Control yourself. Discipline. He forced himself to let go of the nasty, growing, firm lump in the thick orange skin. That peculiar mental fuzziness overtook him again, and he stared at the wall with a blank expression. Without conscious thought, he clutched the tweezers and viciously jabbed them into the side of his thigh. The needle-like point slid effortlessly into the skin and poked out through the top of the scab wound. Perry screamed in pain, his mind cleared. He realized both what he was doing and what he had to do. 
he ripped the tweezers free. Bright red blood streaks flew in all directions, landing on his linoleum floor like tiny threads, as did wet strands of a much darker red, so dark it looked... purple. Blood and purple trickled down his leg. He set the tweezers on the counter and yanked free a rolling wad of toilet paper, which he pressed firmly into the wound. The paper turned bright red. The bleeding quickly subsided. Perry gently lifted the wad of bloody paper. The stabbing tweezers had ripped through the orangish skin, leaving a thick, torn piece sticking up from the center. This thing had to go. And it had to go right motherfucking now. Play through the pain. He fastened the tweezers around the flap of orange skin, squeezed tightly, and yanked as hard as he could. Ripping, clawing pain shot through his leg, but he smiled with satisfaction as the orange flesh tore free. More blood spilled to the floor. He held the piece of flesh up to the light. It was thick, thick like the skin on one of those fat, sun-kissed oranges, the kind that are as large as grapefruit. Thin white tendrils stuck out from the sides like a thousand minute jellyfish arms. The fleshy thing was ripped and torn in a dozen places, but had come off in one solid piece. He set it aside and dabbed at the wound with fresh toilet paper. Despite the pain, he felt surprisingly good, like he'd finally taken control of the situation. The newly exposed flesh seemed incredibly sensitive, and even the slightest touch hurt. Tiny rivulets of blood slowly ran from the wound's edges. But something wasn't right. He stared at his bloody thigh, and his in-control feeling faded away. This wasn't over. Not yet. A discolored, pale, whitish patch the size of a quarter sat in the wound's center. It seemed perfectly round, but bits of normal flesh swelled up around it to cover the edges of the white patch. Perry used the pointy tweezers to poke at the white growth. It seemed firm yet flexible. As the cold feeling of panic grabbed hold of his brain, he realized he didn't actually feel the poking tweezers. He didn't feel them because the whitish patch wasn't him. When he pinched at it, the normal flesh around the edges easily peeled up and away from the white spot. The white spot was a separate thing from his own skin. It was as if a rounded, plastic button had spontaneously grown within the muscles of his thigh. He pushed the loose flesh from the edges of the white growth. The thing's shiny coating made it look like a piece of bone china. Did cancer look like this? Maybe, but he was pretty sure that cancerous flesh didn't make perfect circles and didn't just spring up in a matter of days. Cancer or no cancer, the sight of the milky white growth stirred a primitive fear in his soul, as if a rusty bear trap had clamped down on his heart pinching it shut, preventing it from pumping. He tried to master his breathing, tried to calm himself. He carefully slid the tweezers under the whitish growth. The point scraped against his raw muscle, but he ignored the pain. He lifted the tweezers from the underside. The hard growth tilted within his flesh, but it stayed anchored in his leg. Blood pooled each time he moved it. He carefully used his fingers to pull back his flesh as far back as it would go, probing underneath with the tweezers. Like putting your hands in your pocket and being able to see what's there, Perry felt a stem, a stem that extended farther into his thigh, anchoring the white thing in place. Doctor time. Definitely doctor time. But first, he wanted this thing out of his leg, and he wanted it out now. He had to remove it. He couldn't stand to just leave this fucking thing in his flesh for even one more second. With the tweezers centered on the unseen stem, Perry pulled up gently. 
As he lifted the growth, he felt the stem's length via a strange combination of sensations from his thigh muscles and resistance against the tweezers. The whitish mass pulled free of his flesh with a pop of inrushing air. Thin blood trails arced from the open wound, splashing against his leg and adding to the red and purple streaks on the worn tile floor, but the stem stayed firmly anchored deep in his thigh. Agonizing pain crept up his leg, but he ignored it, kept it distant from his consciousness. He had to do this. It was time to turn the Magnificent Seven into the Big Six. Keeping the tweezers firmly gripped on the strange stem, he yanked up as hard as he could, yanked with the strength of a condemned man fighting for his life. The tough, resilient stem stretched and stretched and stretched until the tweezers' gripped head was a good two feet above his thigh. It stretched like taffy, bits of blood and clear slime masking the milky white color. The stretching slowed, then stopped. And with a snarl, Perry pulled harder. The unseen anchor ripped free. The stem shot out of his leg like a rubber band and wetly slapped against his wrist. He looked at his thigh. A narrow opening, smaller than a pencil and already closing, sank down into his raw flesh like a tiny black hole. A rivulet of blood poured out, pushed up the tube like squeezed toothpaste as the thigh muscles expanded and closed the hole. A smile broke across Perry's face. A feeling of primitive success coursed through him, as did a limited blast of hope. He turned his attention to the strange white growth. The rounded head pinched firmly between the tweezers. The stem, or tail or whatever the hell it was, wrapped wetly about his wrist, held to his skin by bloody slime. He moved his hand toward the light to get a better look at the growth. As he rotated his wrist, marveling at the strange thing, he felt a brief tickling sensation, almost imperceptible, like the smallest mosquito trying to land. Perry's eyes shot wide with revulsion. He felt his stomach churn and his adrenaline surge. The white thing's tail squirmed like a snake trapped in a predator's grip. With a shout of fear, Perry threw the scissors into the bathtub where they clanked against the white porcelain and clattered near the drain. The squirming, wet, wiggling white thing remained wrapped about his wrist, the tail tickling his skin as the heavy, round, plastic button head hung limp and free, swinging wildly with Perry's every movement. Perry screamed, both in disgust and panic, and violently snapped his wrist as if he were flinging mud from his fingers. The white thing hit the mirror with a little splat. It looked like a moving piece of cooked spaghetti hanging loosely from the glass. Still writhing, its desperate motion smearing wet slime across the mirror, it slowly started to slide down. Rapid-fire thoughts roared through his head. That thing was inside me. That thing was alive. It's still alive. Perry instinctively slapped hard against the mirror, his huge hand rattling the glass with a loud bang. The squirming growth erupted as if he'd slammed a soft-boiled egg. Thin gouts of thickish, purplish gel spewed across the mirror. Perry yanked his hand away. Bits of white flesh, now limp and saggy, covered his palm, as did globs of the purple goo. Curling his lip in revulsion, he quickly turned to grab the towel that hung from the shower curtain rod. His sudden move tangled him in the pants still hanging about his ankles. His balance gone, he fell forward. He reached his hands out to brace his fall, but there was nothing to grab before his forehead smacked against the toilet seat. A sharp crack reverberated off the narrow bathroom's walls, but Perry was out before he even heard the sound. You have been listening to Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. 
Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.